Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Welcome back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. We are going to do a great interview today with Mako Nagasawa, talking about atonement theories and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Danielle thought that we got a little too nerdy. Yep. Uh, But this one's for the nerds out there. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, Mako is like one of your top theologians, mm-hmm. and he's an incredible person. You know, you don't talk about any of this stuff, but he's involved in all sorts of really cool things, including cre- helping to create this like financial literacy curriculum called Lazarus at the Gate that you and I really like, and I talk about in um, my book, The Myth of the American Dream. So I think it's really cool just to introduce people to a theologian they maybe haven't heard about before. Uh, but yeah, you were just geeking out big time and <laughs> I love it. But we also want to make space for people where if you don't want to listen to like 30 plus minutes of people talking about atonement theories, that's fine. Next week, we will be back with me and Chrisman talking about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe movies. And I do say plural because we watched like the one that's on Disney Plus and the BBC one is actually a TV series, a six-part TV series that aired in 1988 that I grew up with. So we'll be yakking about that next week, back to mm-hmm. some more pop culture things. But today is a really great interview with Mako. Yeah. And one thing that I love about Mako is um, he's been doing ministry with like marginalized people for a long time. Yeah. So um, his theology come. he's basically like, you know, he did ministry with inmates. Um mm-hmm various things and then he's like let's go back and like look at the early church and like what was their theology and also he seems to know like everything about c.s lewis yes that's true it's obvious he's kind of a genius (laughs) i don't know where it is where it exists but he at some point like made all these like graphs and diagrams of like theology and like harry potter theology and uh c.s lewis like we gotta find those i know yeah i should I'll, i'll look for him and we can put a link up uh you know lord of the rings like you did it all. So Yeah, it's incredible. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I also feel like this episode is revealing our hand a little bit about why we're doing this whole series because we do want to upend some of these quote unquote orthodox evangelical positions. And uh, you know, I grew up thinking that especially the line The Witch in the Wardrobe was the most boring book in the series because it was just the story of Aslan being killed and coming back to life. But actually, when you dig down deep, it's not the atonement theory I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys don't mention this. There's like a bunch of different atonement theories, and you guys don't like talk about that logically or anything, which is fine. But we just jumped in. I mean, let's just say it right here the vast majority of white American evangelicals, and, and maybe even broader than that, we primarily talk about the crucifixion and atonement 
as penal substitutionary atonement. So judicial, you guys mentioned like a judicial atonement system. That's mm-hmm. the one that most of us are like, that's it. That's the main one. That's what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And that has influenced so much. Mako doesn't talk about in this interview, but he's talked about in other ones, how that theory of atonement even has influenced, you know, our criminal justice system in the United States. And mm-hmm. so that's a huge deal. And Mako is saying that is not how C.S. Lewis viewed uh, what happened in the Narnia books, because that's not what C.S. Lewis viewed was the primary work of Jesus dying um, for us. So there's other atonement theories out there. Um, one of my favorites is the ransom theory, because we named our son Ransom. But uh, mm-hmm. right, what would yeah. you say is that maybe the official title of what Mock was kind of talking about during the end of this interview? Yeah, so he's talking about healing atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, so penal substitutionary atonement, which is sort of like what the gospel is to evangelicals, mm-hmm. is like God has to punish sin. God won't be satisfied until... Uh, he angrily punishes sin, mm-hmm. um, and therefore Jesus stepped in our place so God could punish Jesus so that uh, we could have relationship yeah, with God. Jesus took the wrath, yeah. Yeah. Um, healing atonement theory is, uh, it's actually hard to wrap my head around still, um, but it really is this idea of that um, that God wants to heal us, that sin is a disorder, um, it's this disease that has been passed on and on and on. Um, and the law was trying to kind of lead us into more healthy ways of living, but it failed to do that. But Jesus in his dying and rising somehow changed. He, he uh, became one with us in our humanity and changed humanity so that we can walk in the way of life. Yeah, so I think if you're, you might have a lot of tension in yourself as you listen to this interview because bringing up things that maybe feel heretical, um, you know, I don't think they are heretical. Also, just thinking about next week when we are talking about the movies, if this sparks something in you, I encourage you go read The Chronicles of Narnia, listen to an audiobook, or watch the movie or the TV series because that's available for free on YouTube. Um, and just pay attention to what's going on when C.S. Lewis is talking about atonement and if it really matches up with what you think is, is orthodox or not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm really excited to share this interview. I'm really excited to have you with us today, Mako, talking about atonement theory in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Looking at this story um, as someone who knows a lot about atonement theory, what, what stands out to you about the story that Lewis has told here? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question. And it's certainly colorful and it's been debated, um, which uh, I'm sure you, this is partly why we're doing this. Uh-huh. In the particular case of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, well, you know, like there's kind of a simple way of, of reading the story, which is okay. I mean, uh, Aslan, it defeats the witch, right? And so it's uh, in, and the witch has a claim over Edmund, and and so that's kind of a basic outline of like, oh, yeah, Jesus um, uh, dies and rises, and then beats the devil, and you know this is this is kind of at the heart of it. Um, I think where where a lot of uh, discussion comes in is okay, but there's there's this. Um, law that is engraved on the stone table right and it's is something like uh, you know if there's a traitor then the, uh, now i'm forgetting the wording exactly but uh, you know his life was forfeit or something and and then you know so what is the role of that and 
and then there's also the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, um, which, which uh, we could definitely talk about. What what is that? Um, there there is something going on, uh, uh, but it, it has to do with uh, well being and becoming. It has to do with the fact that Edmund ate something that then. And just then started to desire that thing more and more, and and so something became a part of him that should never have been a, a part of him, right? In the story, it's Turkish delight, but you know you get the sense that there's something more about that candy that the White Witch gave him, and it plays with his mind, it plays with his desires. He becomes addicted in that sense, and he, it doesn't mean that he's uh, that his choices are determined or that he has. He doesn't have free will, but uh, that there, there's something more happening, and hmm. that that uh, fits in with a lot of other of C.S. Lewis's writings because he he would understand the Bible as, yeah, uh, this is really a diagnosis of our desires. Hmm. Um, so of, of of course, you know, our actions, choices, behavior, those things matter, but they matter because they because we're shaping our desires and our, our human nature as a partnership project between ourselves and God, because that's always how God intended it. Mm-hmm. And, and so the whole uh, kind of basis for early Christians to think is Jesus's human nature that is, is one in which, which was, was corrupted when he made contact with it in his incarnation, but he fought with it, he shaped it, and he, he, uh, he died to kill the thing that was killing us. He rose in order to give us a new humanity that was cleansed and purified, transfigured, really, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that was that no longer had the corruption. So we participate in Jesus's humanity and mm-hmm. by His Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is blunted a little bit in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, simply because Aslan is not a human character. Mm. Mm-hmm. So does this mean, if I'm kind of reading between the lines, something about this distorted, uh, distorted desire that comes that starts at this particular part and and causes a a disorder of humanity, right? Um, leads to the stone table. Something like that, yes. Is that maybe that's right. overstating it, but that it's and and the stone table being both justice and death. Um, uh, in in a, in a sense, uh, I I think it represents something about if we're to tie it to biblical motifs, of course, the kind of the Ten Commandments uh, being etched on stone, and uh, you know, in some ways, however. The commandments were, were had had been in well because we're made in God's image and we're meant to grow in God, into God's likeness that they they were meant to be really inscribed in our hearts uh, and you know Jeremiah talks about how one day the temple will be replaced and he's like God will write His law on our hearts mm-hmm. um, it seems like as a replacement for the stone tablets because. The, uh, those things, that was kind of a, a temporary stopgap measure of, you know, God relating to Israel in some way. Um, that, was, that was not quite what God really wanted to do. Um, you know, God had called Israel up on the, onto the mountain in Exodus 19. They said no. 
Now, Moses went up and his face shone, which means that he passed through the fire and he was somehow cleansed and purified in some limited sense. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but, you know, he, even he messed up later. But the, the idea being God says, okay, well, I, I didn't get your full participation, but I'll come among you and, uh, you know, I'll etch this into stone because I, I want you to understand what, what it is I really want to do, which is to complete the writing on your hearts. And so, you know, circumcision of the heart was in Deuteronomy 10, 16, something that God said, look, do this. And what, what that is, is internalizing the rest of the commandments, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, if you're able to do that, you will cut sin away. You will cut the desires, the negative desires away, mm. and you will inscribe something uh, onto, your, onto your heart. So Proverbs 3 um, talks about that. There, there are other places that use different idioms. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I think it, that stone table seems to represent something that is there because, um, you know, the creation of Narnia was not quite complete. There was some kind of cul-de-sac that, that it kind of went into for a little while, right? And mm. as long as the white witch was there, it was mm. going to be around. Hmm. Yeah. And so kind of putting that all together. So the, the idea that the stone stone table has this seems to have this allusion to the 10 commandments and what God wants. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then putting that together with Aslan being, I was going to say crucified, he's not crucified, but Aslan being <laughs> executed on it. Right, right. Right. So help me understand kind of then what that means in this like kind of context that you just explained. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think what it, in, in, a, in a sense, it, it means, uh, you know, symbolically that, that uh, Aslan's body was broken. His life was taken on, on the very place where this, uh, this thing needed to be fulfilled. Not that the stone table itself was vindictive or bloodthirsty, um, or that the emperor of the sea was vindictive and bloodthirsty, but but simply because uh, the the you know the deepest stuff, the commandments, so to speak, uh, were not was it was not completely done. Uh, it was not done into the flesh or done into the human heart quite yet. Mm -hmm. um, Aslan was the one who went all the, all the way and, and completed that. So the emphasis, again, would be on his victory, his active obedience, as opposed mm -hmm. to his victimhood or supposed victimhood or, or his passive obedience, right? Like mm -hmm. he was, you know, he, all he really needed to do was live a good life until, until that point and then be kind of passively be killed. But no, it's, it's that, He was doing something uh, within within his own lion nature, hmm. or or whatever nature he has, in order to accomplish uh, what he would need to accomplish to breathe out his breath, hmm. his spirit onto the stone, the stone statue. So there's a real symmetry between, I think, the stone mm -hmm. table and the stone statue. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the table, the stone table. Uh, insofar as it represented the, the, the Ten Commandments 
not in a negative way, but in a in a partial positive way. Like this is eventually something that needs to be done in um, in the heart of of someone mm-hmm. is the true king. Yeah. And Aslan in that way, like leads the way. Right. And so and right. this would be kind of right. going along with these ideas of that, that uh, as scripture says, Christ was obedient to the point of death. Right. And in that way is, so yes. this idea so that, that Jesus, if I'm getting this right, uh, Jesus lives in this selfless way this selfless way that like if as God is restoring humanity, um, if everyone lives that way, then we actually get to a place of mutual flourishing of all people, which is, was sort of like God's idea of Israel in the first place. And so then, you know, they fall short of that over and over. uh, And then Jesus comes and Jesus demonstrates, look, I'm able to, to be self-sacrificial for uh, to this point of death and then invites us into that. And that actually that self-sacrificial way of living is actually a life giving way of living in a sense. Right. And that's like the, that would be like the breath of life that we get is when we, when we follow Jesus into that way of living where we think not only of ourselves, but also think of our neighbors, um, that that is like, that is stepping into like the humanity that, that God wants to heal us into. Um, and, and the breathing of life on, you know, statues kind of has that same feel of like we're invited into this new way of living or as switchfoot said a new way to be human <laughs> like years and years ago ah. that phrase just came to mind <laughs> yeah and and he the, the you know the uh, epistle to the hebrews plays a big role because it talks about jesus being um he learned obedience right and he became perfect it wasn't that he was and it's referring to, I think, his mm-hmm. humanity or his human nature. Uh, it wasn't that he was somehow born perfect, um, but that he had to learn something and press mm-hmm. that learning into his very humanities to become a quote-unquote yeah. source of our salvation. Uh, Lewis, can I can I read a um, yeah, definitely. quote from Mere Christianity? Because mm-hmm. he, he's got some great uh, things here. He, he says... Um, uh, first he says only a bad person needs to repent only a good person can repent perfectly <laughs> right so the worse you are the more you need it and the less you can do it the only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect mm-hmm. person he would not need to do it and that that becomes you know his explanation for why really god takes on mm-hmm. human nature from within mm-hmm. and plays the role from within uh because only only god can push human nature to mm-hmm. the point where it needed to be pushed uh, and invest love mm-hmm. into other centered love into human nature to the point mm-hmm. where it needed to be saturated. And uh, he's, he's got some beautiful uh, uh, explanations of that in mere Christianity, uh, especially in that mm. chapter four, the perfect penitent. But I, I think, yeah, he's working that out in, using imagery and 
The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What I'm gathering from all of this is that what Lewis believed was accomplished at the stone table and on the cross is quite different than what Mm -hmm. most evangelicals believe. Yeah, very much. Um, Somehow, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, if, I think most evangelicals are, are, have been told something like, well, Jesus died in order to become a victim of the Father, right? Because the Father had some wrath mm-hmm. to pour out but on, on us. So Jesus, it, there's like a courtroom image, and you know, the Father is the judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're up on trial. The, the sentence is death. Jesus steps into the courtroom, takes the punishment of death, and then we're kind of left to observe that. And we could respond to that and say, thank you. But, you know, that, that, that's the idea. And the emotions that go along with that are what I would call survival emotions, right? Because it's like anxiety mm-hmm. and guilt at first um, before Jesus steps in or before Jesus is in the picture. And then after Jesus dies, it's <laughs> relief and then gratitude. So, you know, I, I think that mm. those are the survival emotions. And, and I think that's why it's really mm-hmm. powerful um, and why it seems to capture a lot of people because it's kind of basic. But I, I don't actually mm-hmm. think that's what's going on. Um, and certainly the early church did not think that that's how they should explain Jesus's mm-hmm. life, death, and resurrection. Nor did C.S. Lewis, if I'm getting that right. Right, and nor did C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to Athanasius's book mm. on the Incarnation, which Athanasius wrote about mm. 328 AD as he was becoming bishop of uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And um, mm. it's a stunning work. I mean, C.S. Lewis is in awe because just how easily uh, uh, Athanasius deals with complex mm. issues with very simple language. It just shows like mm. he's a master of what he's talking about. Uh, but the, the idea there is that um, in, in um, Athanasius, as a representative of the early churches, you know, Jesus died in order to burn away the, mm. the corruption from human nature, first in himself and then mm. in us by the Spirit. So, mm-hmm. so it's a medical paradigm that, that uh, in a legal paradigm, our, like the Western legal system cannot differentiate between... Uh-huh or formally can't differentiate between, you know, like you in your personhood and the things that contributed to the brokenness in our human nature. But uh, in a medical paradigm, uh, a doctor Mm -hmm. can totally do that, right? A, a A good doctor differentiates between you as a person and the disease that's in you. A good surgeon differentiates between you as a person and the cancer in your body. And the more they, that she or he loves you, the, the more uh, they're going to hate the disease or the cancer because they're against mm. the thing that is against you. And so in the, in the older atonement model, um, there, there's, there's not a sense that the father is against the son. It's, it's the sense that the son is carrying out the will of the father and the heart of the father to embrace us in our human nature. And then as a human to, to uh, 
kill the mm. dis- to resist the disease, like to resist the cancer. Um, even though it comes with all these temptations and all these struggles, <clears throat> um, and to you know, mm-hmm. to kill the thing that was killing us, uh, so that he could rise mm-hmm. in a new humanity without it. So, I mean, the the difference is is, is very strong. For me, growing up, um, really the the uh, what Jesus did on the cross was about my acceptance and belonging. Right. Um, and so this idea of like, I, um, there has to be this punishment before God can accept me or get close to me or be in relationship with me. Right. But what you're saying is like, that's not, that's not the framework here. This isn't about God getting close to us or loving us or how God feels about us, uh, right. changing how God feels about us. Right. Um, actually, it's like God has looked at us all along with love and seen, we've talked about this before, kind of the core of us is being made in his image. But right. there are these ways that we, that sin distorts us. You know, I grew up being told you might look good on the outside, but at the core of you is rotten and sinful. (laughs) And it (laughs) sounds like what you're saying is like the early church and Lewis had a a slightly uh, kind of the opposite where it's like at the core of you is this person that's been made by God and, and you're, you know, someone that God loves. Right, but because of these choices we make, there's this unhealth, there's this disease, that is not really the core of who we are, but it does become who part of who we are, and that part needs to be healed and removed, like a surgeon would would take like a tumor out. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, I, I think that's what we find Paul doing in Romans seven, as he talks about, I think, his experience as a Jewish person before he met Jesus, he, he says, well, this is what it was like to be under the law. It's not that the law was bad, it was very good, but it was like a pretty demanding health regimen. And mm-hmm. I couldn't do everything. I kept, especially on the on the coveting part, right? <laughs> I kept <laughs> coveting everything, uh, mm-hmm. lusting after everything. The, internally, there were, I recognized there's something about me that doesn't like the boundaries. And mm. so you know, how is that not accurate to how we experience ourselves? But, mm-hmm. but, but his differentiation was there's an I myself that wants to do God's will and honor God, but there's also this sin which indwells me. He says, he calls it the flesh mm-hmm. um, or the evil which indwells me. So conceptually, he could differentiate between, well, there's how God created me which is the i myself and which is really important because uh you know god if he's going to be good in our story Mm -hmm. he can't make us messed up like that that would be messed up um that would mean that he is somehow both good and evil or evil Mm -hmm. or just evil and then he's like taunting us with a problem that well Mm -hmm. we, we can never get out of because it's just we were made that way Instead, there's this kind of alien in our body, and it's this alter ego or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But the flesh, the, the sin which indwells me, which, yes, it touches everything I do and all of, yeah, sure, my motivations, but it's not the, the self that I was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Romans 8.3, Paul says, 
for what the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh of Israel, meaning, you know, again, this is a medical paradigm. God is like a, a good doctor. He's saying, this is what you, he said to Israel, this is what would lead to your health. Mm-hmm. Now, they weren't able to fully do it, uh, but still they accomplished a lot. They, um, mm-hmm. they pushed back against that sinfulness. They, they also came to agree with God's diagnosis, which is mm-hmm. amazing. They didn't mm-hmm. like blame someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, they also documented their, the, the, their diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, so it's um, Jeremiah, right? Or, you know, starting with Moses, like, got to circumcise the heart. Well, God will have to do it. And Jeremiah says, like, he will have to write his law in the heart. Or Ezekiel saying, he will have to give you a new heart. Or mm-hmm. uh, Psalm 51, David says, give me a clean heart. I mean, all these things are, I think, slightly different language for the same basic idea. I, I need to be healed. I, I need to be cleansed. Um, mm-hmm. And and so in Romans eight three, it's you know it's uh, for you know what the law was powerless to do. God did by sending His Son in the likeness of of sinful flesh, which really means in the mature form of sinful flesh, mm-hmm. to condemn sin in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really the faithfulness of Jesus. Yeah, uh, His active obedience. Right. Wow. This is so. This is just such a different framework than when I first read the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe," or is read to me. You know what I'm hearing now is there's by eating the Turkish delight. It's not that we've offended a cosmic, uh, wrathful God. Right. Um, but it's that we've started ourselves down a path where we're going to desire things that are harmful to ourselves and to others. Right. And without Aslan stepping in, right, we're, we're helpless to get on another track. And I love the doctor metaphor. I like to think of God as a, as a therapist sometimes, right? Therapists are like, yeah, I, I, you know, you're, you're maybe engaged you know, sometimes it's just mental health, but sometimes it's like you're engaging in things that are harmful to yourself and harmful to others. I'm right. glad you're here. Let's do some work together. I have the treatment plan. Right. You know, you are going to be required to do some work. I can't do this all for you. Right. But I'm going to help you and we're going to work this together. And without me, like, yeah, I wouldn't expect that you would get better, that your behavior would change. Exactly. And, and it's about, you know, like uh, believing that your, your therapist, right? Like mm-hmm. the person who knows more and has the resources actually wants your good and it is always mm-hmm. excited to t- when you come into the office, right? Right. Um, and somehow, it, I, I think since Luther and Calvin, there was, there was a diminishment of human nature as a consideration and human desires. And so it mm-hmm. all became about deeds 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 mm. deeds what have you done and it, was that good enough or not and and i think what we're coming back to what lewis certainly would advocate is no it's about desires that of course whether you you know eat healthy whether you exercise that that totally affects what you want um whether whether you want deeper relationship with god mm. um so it matters um but not not because God's acceptance of you hangs in the balance, right? Or mm-hmm. that God gets totally upset or needs to be, a, 
assuaged or satisfied by like your suffering um, before you step in the office and work mm-hmm. with Right, that would right. make no sense. So the 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 idea that uh, in 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 the other in this kind of legal category of it's all about your deeds and actions and whether it's ever good enough and it's never good enough because your motives suck even when you do good things and and so God is mad and 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 so he's going to ex- he he's going to satisfy himself by your suffering for all of the obedience that you he didn't get from you. Oh, and the and then Jesus steps in and provides some kind of relief, I guess. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's really not what Lewis is, is portraying, and it's not what the early Christians thought. Right, yeah. Yeah, Lewis is saying we're, you, because of you've eaten this Turkish delight, you've got, gotten on this path that you can't get off of yourself. You are, right. you are captive, you are imprisoned by your desires, yep. and it takes this supernatural act in order to to be able to come back to the place that you're intended to be, right. right? As a healthy human that is connected to other people, has healthy relationships, right? Um, and in order to do that, that meant Aslan actually stepping in, um, kind of under the blade if we're using that surgical metaphor and going through the pain, which is, it's not punishment. It's just pain because that's kind of the, the, the reality of it is that change is painful and dying to those parts of, of selfishness is painful. Um, But as he does that, he also invites us into it as well, which is what Aslan does when he goes and breathes on the statues. Yep. That's right. Wow. That is, yeah, very different uh, takeaway than what I grew up with. Yeah, I like to say Jesus died ahead of us, not instead of us. Mm -hmm. Right? Like he 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 went through first, and then he dies and rises, and then he invites us to follow Mm -hmm. him and um to participate in what he's done on on our behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk about Chronicles of Narnia and atonement theory. Um, man, it is, it just reminds me of how, you know, especially if you grew up in the church with this, you know, four, four spiritual laws that explain what atonement was hearing this, you're just like, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Like this doesn't make sense to me. So, uh, which is why I sort of like ask clarifying question after clarifying question, because it's like, it's a totally different framework and it's hard to compute the first time that you hear it or the fifth time you hear it. It, it, it is. And, uh, it takes many good stories (laughs) to help us understand. And so, uh, yes, um, you know, if it would help, uh, our, our listeners here that you could refer them to my website um, mm-hmm. because yeah. I, I really, it, it did, it took a long time for me to, to ponder this, to chew on it uh, and mm-hmm. to, and I, I still think, I think I'm still absorbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, and, and especially to see it in scripture, that's the, mm-hmm. the real test. Um, mm-hmm. And of yeah, I think it's totally there as I've, I've been alluding to. Um, yeah. But if folks need uh, a little extra help with that or, or mm-hmm. would appreciate it, then yeah. you could find me at the Anast- uh, at www.anastasiscenter.org. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also have a great Facebook group where people are discussing yes. these themes as well, which I'm a part of. And I've really appreciated. I don't post much, but I am always uh, excited to see what people are sharing. So, Well, well thanks, Crispin. We're, we're going to do something uh, related to mental health, which I'm, I know you're mm-hmm. very much involved in professionally, but but pastorally as well and or, or from a pastoral disposition and we'll be talking about emotional development uh, being impacted by your atonement theology because i think mm, it totally yeah. gets impacted uh-huh yeah that that sounds so great i'm definitely want to check that out because that's kind of the the place that i live right now so you know yep. thinking about like what are the ways that our our early faith teachings um impact the the way that we relate to god and also the way we relate to other people so yeah 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 well crispin thank you so much for having me on your podcast this yeah thank you so much i really appreciate it i love being able to pick your brain and um yeah i always enjoy anything that you're a part of thanks Marco. thanks so much likewise i enjoy all that you're doing here This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine, and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.